Section four, chapter four, part one of Elizabeth, Queen of England, fifteen thirty three to sixteen o three, by Edward Spencer Beasley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four, Elizabeth and Mary Stuart, fifteen fifty nine to fifteen sixty eight. When Elizabeth mounted the throne, it was taken for granted that she was to marry, and marry with the least possible delay. This was expected of her, not merely because in the event of her dying without issue there would be a dispute whether the claim of Mary Stuart or that of Catherine Grey was to prevail, but for a more general reason. The rule of an unmarried woman except provisionally during such short interval as might be necessary to provide her with a husband, was regarded as quite out of the question. It was the custom for the husbands of heiresses to step into the property of their wives and stand in the shoes, so to speak, of the last male proprietor, in order to perform those duties which could not be efficiently performed by a woman. Elizabeth's sister, while a subject, had no thought of marrying, but her accession was considered by herself and everyone else to involve marriage. If the nobles of England could have foreseen that Elizabeth would elude this obligation, she would probably never have been allowed to mount the throne. Her marriage was thought to be as much a matter of course and as necessary as her coronation. Accordingly, the House of Commons, which met a month after her accession, immediately requested her to select a husband without delay. Her declaration that she had no desire to change her state was supposed to indicate only the real or affected coyness to be expected from a young lady. There was no lack of suitors, foreign or English, the Archduke Charles, son of the Emperor and cousin of Philip, would have been welcomed by all Catholics, and acquiesced in by political Protestants like Cecil. The ardent Protestants were eager for Iran, and Cecil, till he saw it was useless, worked his best for him, regardless of the personal sacrifice his mistress must make in wedding a man who was not always quite sane and eventually became a confirmed lunatic. Not many months of the new reign had passed before it began to be suspected that Elizabeth's partiality for Lord Robert Dudley had something to do with her evident distaste for all her suitors. To her ministers and the public, this partiality for a married man became a cause of great disquietude. They not unnaturally feared that with a young woman who had no relations to advise and keep watch over her, it might lead to some disastrous scandal incompatible with her continuance on the throne. Marriage with Dudley at this time was out of the question, but within four months of her accession the Spanish ambassador mentions a report that Dudley's wife had a cancer, and that the Queen was only waiting for her death to marry him. About the humble extraction of Elizabeth's favourite, much nonsense was talked in his lifetime by his ill-wishers, and has been duly repeated since. 
he was as well born as most of the peerage of that time very few of whom could show nobility of any antiquity in the male line the duke of norfolk being the only duke at elizabeth's accession and in possession of an ancient title was looked on as the head of his order yet it was only seventy-five years since a howard had first reached the peerage in consequence of having had the good fortune to marry the heiress of the mowbrays edmund dudley minister of henry the seventh and father of northumberland was grandson of john fourth lord dudley and in northumberland by his mother's side was sole heir and representative of the ancient barony of delisle which title he bore before he received his earldom and dukedom in point of wealth and influence indeed the favourite might be called an upstart the younger son of an attainted father he had not an acre of land or a farthing of money which he did not owe either to his wife or to the generosity of elizabeth this it was that moved the sneers and ill-will of a people with whom nobility has always been a composite idea implying not only birth and title but territorial wealth moreover his grandfather though of good extraction was a simple esquire and had risen by helping henry the seventh to trample on the old nobility after his fall his son had climbed to power under henry the eighth and edward the sixth in the same way lord robert dudley again had to begin at the bottom of the ladder no one will claim for elizabeth's favourite that he was a man of distinguished ability or high character he had a fine figure and a handsome face he bore himself well in manly exercises his manners were attractive when he wished to please to these qualities he first owed his favour with elizabeth who was never at any pains to conceal her liking for good-looking men and her dislike of ugly ones finding himself in favour and inheriting to the full the pushing audacity of his father and grandfather he professed for the queen a love which he certainly did not feel in order to serve his soaring ambition elizabeth it is my firm conviction never loved dudley or any other man in any sense of the word high or low she had neither a tender heart nor a sensual temperament but she had a more than feminine appetite for admiration and the more she was unhappily for herself a stranger to the emotion of love the more restlessly did she desire to be thought capable of inspiring it she was therefore easily taken in by dudley's professions and though she did not care for him enough to marry him she liked to have him as well as several other handsome men dangling about her like her lap-dog to use her own expression further she believed and here came in the mischief that his devotion to her person would make him a specially faithful servant we know though elizabeth did not that in fifteen sixty one dudley was promising the spanish ambassador to be philip's humble vassal 
and to do his best for Catholicism, if Philip would promote his marriage with the Queen, that in the same year he was offering his services to the French Huguenots for the same consideration, that at one time he posed as the protector of the Puritans, while at another he was intriguing with the captive Queen of Scots, whom again, later on, he had a chief share in bringing to the block. But we must remember that very few statesmen, English or foreign, in the sixteenth century could have shown a record free from similar blots. Those who, like Elizabeth and Cecil, were undeniably actuated on the whole by public spirit, or by any principle more respectable than pure selfishness, never hesitated to lie or play a double game when it seemed to serve their turn. William of Orange is the only eminent statesman, as far as I know, against whom this charge cannot be made. When this was the standard of honour for consistent politicians and real patriots, what was to be expected of lower natures? Dudley's conduct on several occasions was bad and contemptible, and he must be judged with the more severity because he sinned not only against the code of duty binding on the ordinary man and citizen, but against his professions of a tender sentiment by means of which he had acquired his special influence. I have said that he was not a man of great ability, but neither was he the empty-headed incapable trifler that some writers have depicted him. He was not so judged by his contemporaries, that Elizabeth, because she liked him, would have selected a man of notorious incapacity to command her armies, both in the Netherlands and when the Armada was expected, is one of those hypotheses that do not become more credible by being often repeated. Cecil himself, when it was not a question of the marriage, of which he was a determined opponent, regarded him as a useful servant of the Queen. I do not doubt that Elizabeth estimated his capacity at about its right value. What she overestimated was his affection for herself, and consequently his trustworthiness. Sovereigns and others often place a near relative in an important post, not as being the most capable person they know, but as most likely to be true to them. Elizabeth had no near relatives. If we grant, as we must grant, that she believed in Dudley's love, we cannot wonder that she employed him in positions of trust. A female ruler will always be liable to make these mistakes, unless her ministers and captains are to be of her own sex. On the 3rd of September, 1560, Two months after the Treaty of Leith, Elizabeth told de Quadra that she had made up her mind to marry the Archduke Charles. On the 8th, Lady Robert Dudley died at Cumnor Hall. On the 11th, Elizabeth told de Quadra that she had changed her mind. Dudley neglected his wife and never brought her to court. 
We cannot doubt that he fretted under a tie which stood in the way of his ambition. Her death had been predicted. It is not strange, therefore, that he should have been suspected of having caused it. Nevertheless, not a particle of evidence pointing in that direction has ever been produced, and it seems most probable that the poor deserted creature committed suicide. A coroner's jury investigated the case diligently, and it would seem with some animus against Foster, the owner of Cumnor Hall, but returned a verdict of accidental death. Anyhow, Dudley was now free. The Scotch estates were eagerly pressing Aaron's suit, and the English Protestants were as eagerly backing them. The opportunity was certainly unique, though nothing was said about deposing Mary. Yet nothing could be more certain that, if this marriage took place, the Queen of France would never reign in Scotland. At her wit's end, how to escape a match so desirable for the Queen, so repulsive to the woman, Elizabeth had announced her willingness to espouse the Archduke in order to gain a short breathing time. Vienna was at least further than Edinburgh, and difficulties were sure to arise when details began to be discussed. At this moment, by the sudden death of his wife, Dudley became marriageable. If Elizabeth had been free to marry or not as she pleased, it seems to me in the highest degree improbable that she would ever have thought of taking Dudley. But believing that a husband was inevitable, and expecting that she would be forced to take someone who was either unknown to her or positively distasteful, it was most natural that she should ask herself whether it was not the least of evils to put this cruel persecution to an end by choosing a man whom at least she admired and liked, who loved her, as she thought, for her own sake, and would be as obedient as her lapdog. When nations are ruled by women, and marriageable women, Feelings and motives which belong to the sphere of private life and should be confined to it are apt to invade the domain of politics. If Elizabeth's subjects expected their sovereign to suppress all personal feelings in choosing a consort, they ought to have established the Salic law. No woman, queen or not queen, can be expected voluntarily to make such a sacrifice. Her happiness is too deeply involved. In the autumn, then, of 1660, when Elizabeth had been not quite two years on the throne, she seriously thought of marrying Dudley. It is difficult to say how long she continued to think of it seriously. With him, as with other suitors, she went on coquetting when she had perfectly made up her mind that nothing was to come of it. Perhaps we shall be right in saying that, as long as there was any question of the Archduke Charles, she looked to Dudley as a possible refuge. This would be till about the beginning of 1568. It seems to be always assumed as a matter of course that Cecil played the part of Elizabeth's good genius in persistently dissuading her from marrying Dudley. 
I am not so sure of this. If she had been a wife and a mother, many of her difficulties would have at once disappeared, and the weakest points in her character would have no longer been brought out. It ended in her not marrying at all. I am inclined to think that another enemy of Dudley, the Earl of Sussex, showed more good sense and truer patriotism when he wrote in October 1560. I wish not Her Majesty to linger this matter of so great importance, but to choose speedily, and therein to follow so much her own affection as that by the looking upon him whom she should choose, omnes ejus sensus titilarentur, which shall be the readiest way, with the help of God, to bring us a blessed prince which shall redeem us out of thraldom. If I knew that England had other rightful inheritors, I would then advise otherwise, and seek to serve the time by a husband's choice, seek for an advantageous political alliance. But seeing that she is vultimum refugium, and that no riches, friendship, foreign alliance, or any other present commodity that might come by a husband can serve our turn, without issue of her body, if the queen will love anybody, let her love where and whom she lists. So much thirst I to see her love, and whomsoever she shall love and choose, him will I love, honour, and serve to the uttermost. Perhaps I may be excused for expressing the opinion that the ideal husband for Elizabeth, if it had been possible, would have been Lord James Stuart, afterwards Earl of Murray. Of sufficient capacity, kindly heart, undaunted resolution and unswerving rectitude of purpose, he would have supplied just those elements that were wanting to correct her defects. King of Scotland he perhaps could not be. Regent of Scotland he did become. If he could at the same time have been Elizabeth's husband, the two crowns might have in the next generation been worn by a Stuart of a nobler stock than the son of Mary and Darnley. When Mary Stuart, on the death of her husband Francis the Second, returned to her own kingdom, August 1561, she found the Scotch nobles sore at the rejection of Arran's suit. Bent on giving a sovereign to England in one way or another, they were now ready, Protestants as well as Catholics, to back Mary's demand that she should be recognized as Elizabeth's heir presumptive. To this the English Queen could not consent, for the very sufficient reason that not only would the Catholic party be encouraged to hold together and give trouble, but the more bigoted and desperate members of it would certainly attempt her life, lest she should disappoint Mary's hopes by marrying. She was not so foolish, she said, as to hang a winding-sheet before her eyes or make a funeral feast whilst she was still alive, but she promised that she would neither do anything nor allow anything to be done by Parliament to prejudice Mary's title, 
to this undertaking she adhered long after mary's hostile conduct had given ample justification for treating her as an enemy openly mary was claiming nothing but the succession in reality she cared little for a prospect so remote and uncertain what she was scheming for was to hurl elizabeth from her throne this was an object for which she never ceased to work till her head was off her shoulders her aims were more sharply defined than those of elizabeth and she was remarkably free from that indecision which too often marred the action of the english queen in ability and information she was not at all inferior to elizabeth in promptitude and energy she was her superior these masculine qualities might have given her the victory in the bitter duel but that in the all-important domain of feeling her sex indomitably asserted itself and weighted her too heavily to match the superb self-control of elizabeth she could love and she could hate elizabeth had only likes and dislikes and therefore played the cooler game when mary loved which was only once all selfish calculations were flung to the winds she was ready to sacrifice everything and not count the cost body and soul crown and life interest and honor when she hated which was often rancor was apt to get the better of prudence and so at the fatal turning point of her career when mad hate and madder love possessed her soul she went down before her great rival never to rise again here was a woman indeed and if for that reason she lost the battle in life for that reason too she still disputes it from the tomb she has always had and always will have the ardent sympathy of a host of champions to whom the fair vestal throned by the west is a mere politician sexless cold-blooded and repulsive in fifteen sixty four mary as yet fancy free was seeking to match herself on purely political grounds she was not so fastidious as elizabeth for she does not seem to have troubled herself at all about personal qualities if a match seemed otherwise eligible the hamiltons pressed aaron upon her but he was a protestant he was not heir to any throne but that of scotland and though a powerful family in scotland the hamiltons could give her no help elsewhere philip who now that the guises had become his protégés was less jealous of her designs wished her to marry his cousin the archduke charles of austria but this prince whom elizabeth professed to find too much of a catholic was in the eyes of mary and her more bigoted co-religionists too nearly a lutheran and she doubted whether philip cared enough for him to risk a war for establishing him and herself upon the english throne for this reason the husband on whom she had set her heart was don carlos philip's own son a sort of wild beast but philip received her overtures doubtfully 
the fact being that he could not trust don carlos whom he eventually put to death catherine de medici loved mary as little as she did the other guises but the prospect of the spanish match filled her with such terror that she proposed to make the scottish queen her daughter-in-law a second time by a marriage with charles the ninth a lad under thirteen if she would wait two years for him on the other hand elizabeth impressed upon mary that unless she married a member of some reformed church the english parliament would certainly demand that her title to the succession whatever it was should be declared invalid the house of commons was strongly protestant and had with difficulty been prevented from addressing the queen in favour of the succession of lady catherine grey apart from religion there was deep irritation against the whole scotch nation sir ralph sadler who had been much employed in scotland denounced them as false beggarly and perjured whom the very stones in the english streets would rise against when elizabeth was dangerously ill in october fifteen sixty two the council discussed whom they should proclaim in the event of her death some were for the will of henry the eighth and catherine grey others sick of female rulers were for taking the earl of huntingdon a descendant of the duke of clarence none were for mary or darnley mary's chief friends montague northumberland westmoreland and derby were not on the council parliament and the council being against her mary could not afford to quarrel with the queen elizabeth told her that she would regard a marriage with any spanish austrian or french prince as a declaration of war help from those quarters was far away and at the mercy of wind and waves the border fortresses were near and their garrisons always ready to march besides whichever of the two she might obtain charles the ninth or the archduke she drove the other into the arms of elizabeth but there was another possible husband who had crossed her mind from time to time not a prince d indeed yet of royal extraction in the female line and what was more not without pretensions to that very succession which she coveted henry lord damley son of matthew stuart earl of lennox was by his father's side of the royal family of scotland while his mother was the daughter of margaret tudor sister of henry the eighth by her second husband the earl of angus born and brought up in england where his father had been long an exile he was reckoned as an englishman which in the opinion of many lawyers was essential as a qualification for the crown he was also a catholic and if elizabeth had died at this time it was perhaps darnley rather than mary whom the catholics would have tried to place on the throne elizabeth had promised that if mary would marry an english nobleman she would do her best to get mary's title recognized by parliament to elizabeth therefore mary now turned with the request that she would point out such a nobleman not without a hope that she would name darnley march fifteen sixty four but 
to mary's mortification she formally recommended lord robert dudley this recommendation has often been treated as if it was a sorry joke perpetrated by elizabeth who had never any intention of furthering or even permitting such a match but nothing is more certain than that elizabeth was most anxious to bring it about and it affords a decisive proof that her feeling for dudley whatever name she herself may have put to it was not what is usually called love cecil and all her most intimate advisers entertained no doubt that she was sincere she undertook if mary would accept dudley to make him a duke and in the meantime she created him earl of leicester she regarded him so she told mary's envoy melville as her brother and her friend if he was mary's husband she would have no suspicion or fear of any usurpation before her death being assured that he was so loving and trusty that he would never permit anything to be attempted during her time but she said pointing to darnley who was present you like better yonder long lad her suspicion was correct melville had secret instructions to procure permission for darnley to go to scotland however he answered discreetly that no woman of spirit could choose such a one who more resembled a woman than a man how was elizabeth to be persuaded to let darnley leave england there was only one way to disarm suspicion mary declared herself ready to marry leicester january fifteen sixty five Darnley immediately obtained leave of absence for three months, ostensibly to recover the forfeited Lennox property. In Scotland the purpose of his coming was not mistaken, and it roused the Protestants to fury. The Queen's Chapel, the only place in the lowlands where mass was said, was beset. Her priests were mobbed and maltreated. Murray, who till lately had supported his sister with such loyalty and energy that knox had quarrelled with him prepared with the other lords of the congregation for resistance elizabeth and cecil also had been completely overreached a prudent player sometimes gets into difficulties by attributing equal prudence to a daring and reckless antagonist elizabeth as a patriotic ruler desired nothing but peace and security for her own kingdom if she could have that she had no wish to meddle with scotland mary caring nothing for the interests of her subjects was facing civil war with a light heart and for the chance of obtaining the more brilliant throne was ready to risk her own undeterred by elizabeth's threats mary married darnley July the twenty-ninth, fifteen sixty-five, Murray and Argyle, having obtained a promise of assistance from England, took arms. But most of the lords of the congregation showed themselves even more powerless or perfidious than they had been five years before. Morton, Ruthven, and Lindsay, stoutest of Protestants, were related to Darnley, and were gratified by the elevation of their kinsmen murray failed to elicit a spark of spirit out of the priest-baiting citizens of edinburgh 
and the queen riding steel cap on head and pistols at saddlebow chased him into england lord bedford who was in command at berwick could have stepped across the border and scattered her undisciplined army without difficulty he implored elizabeth to let him do it offered to do it on his own responsibility and be disavowed but he found to his mortification that she had been playing a game of brag she had hoped that a threatening attitude would stop the marriage but as it was an accomplished fact that she was not going to draw the sword this was shabby treatment of murray and his friends and to some of her counsellors it seemed not only shameful but dangerous to show the white feather but judging from the course of events elizabeth's policy was the safe one the english catholics some of them at all events as will be explained presently were becoming more discontented and dangerous the northern earls were known to be disaffected mary believed that in every country in england the catholics had their organization and their leaders and that if she chose she could march to london no doubt she was much deceived in reluctance to resort to violence and respect for constituted authority england even north of the humber was at least two centuries ahead of scotland and if she had come attended by a horde of savage highlanders and border ruffians the very stones in the street would have risen against them it was elizabeth's rule and a very good rule too never to engage in a war if she could avoid it from this rule she could not be drawn to swerve either by passion or ambition or that most fertile source of fighting a regard for honour all the old objections to an invasion of scotland still subsisted in full strength and were reinforced by others it was better to wait for an attack which might never come than go halfway to meet it an invasion of scotland might drive the northern earls to declare for mary which unless compelled to choose sides they might never do some people are more perturbed by the expectation and uncertainty of danger than by its declared presence not so elizabeth smouldering treason she could take coolly as long as it only smouldered as for the betrayal of the scotch refugees elizabeth never allowed the private interests of her own subjects much less those of foreigners to weigh against the interests of england murray one of the most magnanimous and self-sacrificing of statesmen evidently felt that elizabeth's course was wise if not exactly chivalrous he submitted to her public rebuke without publicly contradicting her and waited patiently in exile till it should be convenient for her to help him and his cause mary too though elated by her success and never abandoning her intention to push it further found it best to halt for a while philip wrote to her that he would help her secretly with money if elizabeth attacked her but not otherwise and warned her against any premature clutch at the english crown elizabeth's seeming tameness could hardly have received a more complete justification
Mary had determined to espouse Darnley before she had set eyes on him for purely political reasons. There is no reason to suppose she ever cared for him. It is more likely, as Mr. Froude suggests, that for a great political purpose she was doing an act which in itself she loathed. A woman of twenty-two, already a widow, mature beyond her years, exceptionally able, absorbed in the great game of politics and accustomed to admiration, was not likely to care for a raw lad of nineteen, foolish, ignorant, ill-conditioned, vicious, and without a single manly quality. One man we know she did love later on, loved passionately and devotedly. No slim, girl-faced youngster, but the fierce, stout-limbed, daredevil Bothwell, and Bothwell gradually made his way to her heart by his readiness to undertake every desperate service she required of him. What Mary admired, nay envied, in the other sex was the stout heart and the strong arm. She loved herself to rough it on the warpath. She surprised Bandolph by her spirit. Never thought I that stomach to be in her that I find. She repented nothing, but when the lords and others came in the morning from the watches that she was not a man to know what life it was to lie all night in the fields, or to walk upon the causeway with a jack and a knapscap, a Glasgow buckler and a broadsword. She desires much, says Nollies, to hear of hardiness and valiancy, commending by name all approved hardy men of her country, although they be her enemies, and she concealeth no cowardice even in her friends. Valuable to Mary as a man of action, Bothwell was not worth much as an adviser. For advice she looked to the Italian Rizzio, in whom she confided because, with the detachment of a foreigner, he regarded Scotch ambitions, animosities, and intrigues only as so much material to be utilized for the purpose of the combined onslaught on Protestantism which the Pope was trying to organize. Bothwell was at this time thirty, and Rizzio, according to Leslie, fifty. In spite of all the prurient suggestions of writers who have fastened on the story of Mary's life as a savoury morsel, there is no reason whatever for thinking that she was a woman of a licentious disposition, and there is strong evidence to the contrary. There was never anything to her discredit in France. Her behaviour in the affair of Chastelard was irreproachable. The charge of adultery with Rizzio is dismissed as unworthy of belief even by Mr. Froude, the severest of her judges. Bothwell indeed she loved, and like many another woman who does not deserve to be called licentious, she sacrificed her reputation to the man she loved. But the most conclusive proof that she was no slave to appetite is afforded by her nineteen years' residence in England which began when she was only twenty-five. During almost the whole of that time she was mixing freely in the society of the other sex, with the fullest opportunity for misconduct had she been so inclined. It is not to be supposed that she was fettered by any scruples of religion or morality, yet no charge of unchastity is made against her. 
when Darnley found that his wife, though she conferred on him the title of king, did not procure for him the crown matrimonial, or allow him the smallest authority, he gave free vent to his anger. No less angry were his kinsmen, Morton, Ruthven, and Lindsay. They had deserted the congregation in the expectation that when Darnley was king, they would be all-powerful. Instead of this they found themselves neglected, while the Queen's confidence was given to Catholics and to Bothwell, who, though nominally a Protestant, always acted with the Catholics. The Protestant seceders had in fact fallen between two stools. It was against Rizzio that their rage burnt fiercest. Bothwell was only a bull-headed, blundering swordsman. Rizzio was doubly detestable to them as the brain of the Queen's clique and a low-born foreigner. Rizzio, therefore, they determined to remove in the time-honoured Scottish fashion. Notice of the day fixed for the murder was sent to the banished noblemen in England, so that they might appear in Edinburgh immediately it was accomplished. Randolph, the English ambassador, and Bedford, who commanded on the border, were also taken into the secret, and they communicated it to Cecil and Leicester. It is unnecessary here to repeat the well-known story of the murder of Rizzio. It was part of a large scheme for bringing back the exiled Protestant lords, closing the split in the Protestant party, and securing the ascendancy of the Protestant religion. At first it appeared to have succeeded. Bedford wrote to Cecil that everything would now go well. But Mary, by simulating a return of wifely fondness, managed to detach her weak husband from his confederates. By his aid she escaped from their hands. Bothwell and her Catholic friends gathered round her in arms. In a few days she re-entered Edinburgh in triumph, and Rizzio's murderers had to take refuge in England. End of section 4